Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 46 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Trial Before Festus, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is the next uh, in a series of trials that Paul has in which he's standing before authorities, in this case, the next Roman governor. And it really seems like we're starting over here. And I think the key issue in this in this chapter is really the Holy Spirit's desire through Luke to make everyone, all the readers of Acts, know Paul hasn't done anything wrong. Paul's not a criminal. Uh, I think uh, Acts 25.8, which we'll discuss today, uh, Paul's defense, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. I'm not a criminal. I've done nothing wrong. And that is very much in line with Jesus where it says they hated him without a cause. Hmm. There was no reason. Pilate said multiple times, I find no fault in him. And it reminds us of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 15, when you are accused, let it not be as a murderer, a thief, or any other criminal, or even as a meddler. Um, So don't do anything wrong. And Paul has done nothing wrong. Actually, only right. He's not sinless. It's not that. But he is a righteous man who is being falsely accused. And so we're going to see that uh, today. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province... He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, "'Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense.' But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, 
but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Andy, how does Acts 25, 1 through 12, the first 12 verses of what we've just heard, relate to Acts chapter 24, verse 27? Well, first of all, Felix, uh, the Roman governor, had had many discourses with Paul in private, but didn't release him. And he had no suitable grounds to hold him or charge him, but he held on to him anyway because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Hmm. Left him in prison for two years because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Now we have the same thing with Festus. He wants to do the Jews a favor. And so it, it shows the political control that the Jews have and the threat of their zealous rioting and the obviously the bloodbath that would come as a result of that and the fact that the Romans want to keep the peace. They want as best they can to do the Jews a favor. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why Pilate killed Jesus. He knew Pilate. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. So we have a lesser version of the same thing here. So the connection here is uh, the Roman motive to keep the peace uh, but also the Roman motive to do, do justice according to the Roman pattern. They don't want to just be puppets or uh, be, you know, uh, manipulated by the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the, and the Sanhedrin. Uh, they're, they're in charge after all. But then also, and this is quite notable, the Jews' zeal to kill Paul. It's mm. the first thing they talk to Festus about. Not about taxation, not about various trade issues. Not It's we've got to kill Paul. And this is incredible. It's the first thing, he goes up to Jerusalem, and that same first day they're talking about killing Paul. And so it just shows, I think, all of these who are unbelieving uh, people, the Roman unbelievers and the Jewish unbelievers, are all, to some degree, puppets of Satan, of demons. Mm. And Satan's top priority is kill Paul. So I think that's the connection between 24 and 25. Well, let's go ahead and start in verses 1 and 2. Why did Festus go up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and who specifically did he meet with when he got there? Okay, he is in charge of the province, and part of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, their way of doing governance was to work with local leaders as much as they could. Uh, they wanted their own people managing their own people, and so they had just some simple requirements of a region. They wanted, they wanted peace so they didn't have to bring in Roman legions to put down uprisings. Uh, they wanted commerce. They wanted to make a profit. They wanted taxation, that, that kind of thing. And they wanted general obedience to, to Roman uh, customs and laws. Uh, in order to do that, though, they, they uh, sometimes have to go to some degree cap in hand. So he goes up to Jerusalem, which is where the Jewish leaders were. They're operating the province down in Caesarea, but Jerusalem is the kind of religious leader of Israel, as we know. So he goes up there and he meets with the chief priests and the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, um, so that he can begin governing. He wants to get to know them. He wants to you know, have a connection with them and govern the province. And you mentioned the urgency of these Jewish leaders to mm -hmm. move quickly to mm -hmm. the issue of mm -hmm. Paul, because mm -hmm. for them, he was a significant issue. Mm -hmm. What does this reveal about their feelings concerning Paul as it relates to all the things you just mentioned that could have been on their mind? Yeah, you think about it and it's like, what is their motive? Why? 
Why do they want to kill him? He's, how is he a threat? Um, and so Jesus had said in John's gospel, as he got his disciples ready to be persecuted, um, they will put you out of their synagogues and they'll beat you and they'll accuse you before the Sanhedrin. And those who do such things, speaking of Jewish opposition, will think that they're serving God. Certainly Saul of Tarsus, as he went up, uh, got letters from the high priests and went to the synagogues in Damascus so he could arrest any there who belonged to Christianity, thought he was serving God. And so I think they, there's a misguided zeal, a zeal without knowledge here. That's the best we can say about them. Beyond that, I don't really know. I can understand why Jesus was a threat because there were huge crowds cheering for him and wanting to anoint him king. And, and he was saying he was the Messiah. Paul is not that. Hmm. So I think it's all part of the overall satanic hatred of Jesus and his people and their, their urgency to shut Paul down. So they think they're serving God at the human level, but behind that is that spiritual or demonic uh, opposition, in which Paul writes in Ephesians 6, we, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world. And so they uh, are there serving, ultimately serving Satan. Hmm. What specifically was the nature of their request to Festus and okay. why? They wanted to have Paul transferred from Caesarea, where he was super protected by all the Romans, uh, up to Jerusalem, and they planned to ambush him on the way. He would never make it. And so they're going to kill him. This is just a continuation of the approach of those 40 Jews that had taken a vow not to eat or drink anything until they had assassinated Paul. Hmm. So the same approach is this. You're going to be killed on the way. And it seems that Paul knew that. He knew that he would be ambushed and killed. So that was their their goal is to get the, uh, Festus to transfer Paul up to Jerusalem. So why would Festus have been eager to do a favor for the Jews and if he was eager to do a favor for them, why do you think he didn't yield to their request right away here in verses 3 through 5? Well, he wants to rule the province. He doesn't want the, the Jews ruling. So he wants to listen, and where he can, he wants to give up, uh, give in to them. But he also wants to say no to them from time to time you know, and see what they're going to do. Hmm. So he's got to be in charge. So uh, it's kind of like Pilate when um, uh, he gives in to them on killing Jesus but then puts the sign over Jesus' head, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And they went and were enraged uh, about it and and wanted Pilate to take down the sign. And he said, what I have written, I have written. So he's just being in charge at that point, although that didn't really matter. Killing Jesus was the issue that mattered. So fundamentally, they urge Paul, uh, sorry, urge Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem uh, so they could ambush him. They didn't say that. Festus <laughs> said, look, I'm in Caesarea. I'm going up there. Why don't you come down and press charges down there in Caesarea? And so, uh, you know, he spends some time there and then Paul, he has a conversation with Paul uh, to uh, that same purpose. So he basically, in order to kind of test the limits mm -hmm. of his relationship here is offering a counter proposal saying, I'm not going to do exactly what you want, but mm -hmm. here's a way that maybe we can come to an agreement mm -hmm. as it regards Paul. Yeah. What's significant about the fact that Festus convened Paul's trial immediately upon arriving at Caesarea? And was this the usual pattern? Yeah. Well, one of the great techniques is delay. I mean, you see that even in the American system of jurisprudence, you put off the trial or, you know, get a, uh, you know, an, a continuation in the trial, something like that. But Festus doesn't do that. He goes, gets right after it. And I think it seems to be, all right, this is their top priority. He didn't come to Palestine, Festus, thinking about Paul. 
he came wanting to uh, rule or govern the province and certainly didn't want to be there long. He wanted it as a stepping stone. Mm. It was notoriously difficult province to govern. And so if he could do a good job there, he might get a more plumb position, you know, higher up in the, in the, um, in the empire. So he wants to do that. All right, this is their top priority, this guy Paul. He says later in the account we're looking at today, I was at a loss how to judge such matters. He doesn't know, know what this is all about. So he's like, they're after this thing. I'm going to be after it too. So without delay, he gets after the, uh, the case of Paul and tries to, uh, tries to address it. What does verse 7 teach us about Paul's Jewish adversaries? And why does Luke make so much of the fact that the Jews had no evidence for their accusations? Right. So they're zealous on this. We've made that point. It's pretty obvious. Uh, the account makes it clear this is their top priority. And so they don't waste any time either. They come and they there are many of them. You think about here's Paul. He's alone. I mean, probably physically small of stature, not impressive. His, his public speaking wasn't all that impressive, mm-hmm. it said in Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Just a small Jewish man. Um, and you got all these these Jewish leaders around him, many of whom probably knew him from his earlier days when he was their servant, their lackey. Um, you know, they knew him and some of them maybe didn't, but they knew they hated him. And they were coming at him strongly, standing around like a pack of wolves, really. And as verse 7 said, making many serious accusations against him, but they had no evidence. They couldn't prove any of those things. Uh, and so I think it it all tends toward the Holy Spirit's um, task here, which in part, and the central task is the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But along with it is the significance of Paul, who he is, and the fact that he's innocent of any crimes. So how does Paul defend himself against mm-hmm. their charges being innocent? Yeah, I, I said at the at the beginning that verse 8 is kind of the key. It's the, the whole, this whole section's key. Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews of the temple or against Caesar. I'm innocent. I'm an innocent man. Hmm. And so they're, uh, uh, they're, they're accusing me and charging me of things, and I haven't done anything wrong. I am not a lawbreaker. Um, so I think that's the centerpiece of what this whole chapter is about. Why do you think Festus asks Paul to do what he does in verse 9? Yeah, he wasn't going to originally bring him up there. Look, he's already down there in Caesarea. Why don't you guys come down there and we'll do the trial there? And he's like, no, no, no. We want him transferred up here. And he's like, all right, that's what they want. Doesn't mean I'm going to do it. But he, it says his motive was wanting to do, do the Jews a favor. So this is, um, you know, sometimes in terms of a literary technique, they call it the omniscient author, where the author knows things that mm. you would have no way of knowing if you were not kind of omniscient. And so the author can say what the, what's going through the minds of certain people. And yeah, the author of the Bible is omniscient. He knows what the motives are. And so Festus's motive here is to do the Jews a favor. And he's like, what can I do? All right, so tell you what, Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on those charges. And Paul knows exactly what's going to happen if that. We'll never get the trial. It'll never happen. Yeah, Paul seems vigorously opposed to this idea in verses 10 through 11 because he must have some sense of the wicked hatred Mm -hmm. that these leaders have toward him. What does this section, though, teach us about Paul's character in the face of this kind of opposition? Well, we know also earlier in the interactions he has with some Christians, uh, 
when Agabus had taken his belt and bound him up and made a prophecy and all that, and and now warned by the Holy Spirit on going to Jerusalem. So I think the Holy Spirit gave Paul insight. And so mm. it could be just Paul being a prophet, being an apostle. He knew things, supernaturally knew things. He knew they were going to assassinate him. If you go up there, you'll never make it. And he knew also what the Lord had said to Ananias when he sent him to baptize him in Acts 9.15. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So the whole movement of the book of Acts is to Rome, to get Paul to Rome. That's where the book ends, Acts 28, Paul's in Rome as a witness uh, to Christ in Rome. And so the significant you know, machinations and providential occurrences here are to deliver Paul and get him to Rome. So Paul knows he's going to be assassinated en route to Jerusalem. He can't go there. And so we see Paul's character. He's not afraid to die. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's not afraid to die, but he wants he wants it to be done in God's way. Yeah, talk more about that. It's a striking statement that he makes. He says, uh, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. What a <laughs> statement in front of someone who has the power to make that decision. Well, we have insight from Philippians 1. He says, he says it openly, for myself, it's better to depart and be with Christ. You want to kill me? I'll die a martyr and I'll get a martyr's crown and I'm going to heaven. Uh, so I am not afraid to die, mm. but I want it done in the right way. And we already saw that earlier when they were stretching him out to beat him again. He said, can you stop for a minute? I've got a question for you. Is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And they they stop. So Paul doesn't want to die frivolously. He doesn't want to die by, you know, an assassin's dagger. Um, it's just, no, there's going to be a court trial. And we know in 2 Timothy 4 and just in general, part of his, his final mission is to preach the gospel to Caesar, to actually put the banner of Christ there in space and time and history as a testimony to Caesar. And you think about all of the terrible Caesars that are going to come before finally Constantine declares himself to be a Christian. Many of them very hostile to Christianity, such as Nero and Marcus Aurelius and some of these other persecuting Roman emperors. You know, some of them were worse than others. But it, God, for his own reasons, wanted the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to witness to Christ in Rome. And so he says, look, I'm not afraid to die. That's not what this is about. It's kind of like Jonah that way. Jonah was clearly not afraid to die. Throw me overboard. <laughs> He's ready to die. Well, Paul's better than Jonah. Paul's just a better better man and a better witness than Jonah ever was. But fundamentally he says, look, I'm not afraid to die. But honestly, this is not the way it's going to be done. I am a Roman citizen and I'm standing on trial right now before Caesar's court. This is where it should happen. This has always been a noteworthy uh, portion of the book of Acts to me as I think about God's providence in bringing Paul all the way to his desired destination mm -hmm. by whatever means necessary. Yeah. I wonder if we can reflect just a moment um, on that providence, God's purpose in yeah. uh, having Paul make this appeal because I know – I know we'll get there later, but later on we learn that if he hadn't made this appeal, he wouldn't have had to even go to Caesar. seems like he could have been released. So talk just a moment about God's providence in how he works to get Paul to his desired end. It really is an amazing thing, and we're going to, we're going to delight, I believe, in heaven on the topic of studying the various aspects of God's providence, the twists and turns, all of the plot twists and all of the little things that God did. And so the, uh, the statement he makes here, I appeal to Caesar. That's an official statement made by a Roman citizen. It was a right of, uh, of a Roman 
to face charges directly before Caesar. Now, there had to be a limit to it because there are millions mm. of Roman citizens. So I don't really know how all that worked. But the fact is he made this appeal and it was ultimately granted. Now, we know what's going to happen. Uh, it's going to be a very arduous and difficult journey, even physically, to get him to Rome. Because there's this terrible hurricane and the shipwreck and he's in Malta and a poisonous snake fastens itself to Paul's hand and, and you know, all of these things. And it's not going to be easy to get Paul to Rome. But this appeal to Caesar is a big part of it. You mentioned what was said by Agrippa in the next chapter. If he had not made that appeal to Caesar, he could have been set free. Mm. So fundamentally, uh, his appeal to Caesar is part of God's pl providential plan to get Paul to Rome to preach the gospel. Before we look briefly at verses 13 through 22, how does the extended nature of Paul's trial before the Romans help us gain perspective on our own trials? Yeah, I think the idea, and this starts back in Matthew chapter 10, where he gets the, the Jesus gets the apostles ready to stand before various tribunals and councils and court trials. And then if you, the more you learn about church history, this has happened again and again. John Haas, Martin Luther, uh, just the, 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 great servants of God uh, standing before hostile authority figures, um, they can derive comfort, consolation, and instruction from how, how Paul carried himself in his various trials. We have what, four or five trials that Paul um, is, is on here in the book of Acts, and we can learn how you can carry yourself. Um, and so uh, we, it's very instructional and, and inspirational for us. Well, having agreed to Paul's request... What new problem now faces Festus, and how does Festus think Agrippa can help him with his problem? Well, Agrippa is a Jewish king, and uh, he's going to serve as a council giver, collaborationist king, um, that kind of thing. And uh, there's going to be some connections here, and he can just give him insight. So um, he arrives uh, to pay uh, respects to Festus, the next Roman governor. So let's connect with this guy. And so they go and connect with him. And they spend some time there uh, together, many days. And, and so it isn't long before Festus brings up the case of Paul. And uh, he says, look, uh, he describes him in a certain way. And so, again, the description by Festus of Paul tends toward the Holy Spirit's task or agenda hmm. of declaring that Paul is innocent of all charges. He hasn't done anything wrong. So that's about where we're going to get. It's interesting with Festus being sent to govern this province, presumably having some pedigree that puts him in a position where he would be entrusted with this kind of responsibility, that he's at such a loss concerning how to judge Paul. Why? Why is he struggling so much with this case of Paul? Well, it's religion. It's religious. And he must have known some things, but I don't think he knew about these things yet. And and also it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't as famous as he should be yet. So this is early on in the spread of the gospel. And Festus is talking about some dead man named Jesus, I guess, who Paul claimed was alive. He clearly hasn't heard of Christianity, hasn't mm -hmm. heard of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a marker of how far this project, which is the book of Acts' central project, the spread of the gospel, uh, has yet to go. And so we, we get a, a kind of a mile marker here of, of really some, some uh, road that we need to travel. Hmm. Festus needs to find out who uh, Jesus is and what is the claim that he's alive and what is the significance of it. And he's going to get that in the next chapter, Acts 26. So it's a marker of that. Um, but as uh, Festus kind of reviews Paul's case, he says, look, the, the Jews um, had brought charges against Paul. Uh, I told them it's not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he's faced his accusers. 
uh, and had a chance to defend himself against them. So um, they came the next day. I went to it right away. I didn't delay the case. And and then the accusers get up and they start talking about religion. They start talking about Mm. this dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. And it didn't make any sense to me. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't um, you know, saying that Jews shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. I was expecting that kind of thing. Instead, there's this give and take over Jesus. And I don't even know who he is or what any mm. of it was. So I thought, look, you know, let's see if we can we can get this thing resolved. And um, Paul made a direct appeal to be held over for uh, for the emperor's decision. So I gave in to him and I said, yes, well, uh, to Caesar, you'll go. And Agrippa's interested. He, he yeah. wants to hear more, and so that's what we'll uh, turn to next time. But what does yeah. this final section here of, of the passage we've looked at today teach us about Roman justice? Well, um, anyone who's studied this, the sociology, the economics, the, uh, uh, the customs, the law, the culture of Rome was instrumental in the spread of the gospel in the first three centuries uh, as it goes from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth that traveled frequently along Roman roads. If you look at Paul's strategies, he, he went to strategic population centers and they were frequently dictated by Roman roads and by Roman commerce and Roman laws. And so we see how God uses um, the greatness of Rome for his own purposes. And now Rome is in the dust, the dustbin of history. And uh, you know you can go to go to Rome itself and see the Colosseum and see broken down buildings, and you can read of the history of Rome. But it's gone the way of all the earth. But Christianity continues to grow and to thrive. But God used it. He used the Caesars. He used the laws. He used the court system. He used it for the spread of the gospel. And that's pretty exciting. Andy, any final thoughts on this passage as a whole? Yeah, this is this is my. My thought about it, I, I just, I, I am so thrilled to see the sovereignty of God and specifically the working of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in spreading the gospel of Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And and that process is still going on. So we think about local governments, we think about court officials, I think even about, I've, I've heard of some Indian officials in the nation of India uh, that, are, that, that refuse to give visas to Christian workers because they don't want the spread of the gospel in India. This is well known. Uh, And so many uh, missionaries, aid agencies, others are hindered. And it happens definitely in China, hindered. And it's just Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven laughs at these puny, this has been going on a long time. Mm. So you minor official, you you visa denier, or those that are withholding passports and all that sort of stuff, just understand who you're fighting against. Mm. God is sovereign and he will orchestrate all things for the spread of the gospel and he will deliver the gospel even to the ends of the earth and no one can stop it. This has been episode 46 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 47 entitled, Paul Stands Before Agrippa, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 25 verse 23 through Acts chapter 26 verse 32. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.